I'm Bert Cohen, and in this incredibly historic year, we, you and I, are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig- dig- dignity of man. 2020 seems like a combination of the 1918 so-called Spanish flu epidemic, the 1929 beginning of the Great Depression, and 1968's social and political turmoil on the streets of America. Well, that's all true, and on top of that, we have a truly bizarre Donald Trump in the White House. Now, I've been doing this show for over 15 years, and regular listeners have heard me perhaps too often say that instead of soothing myths, we really need to face up to actual history, which is, of course, often so unattractive, we reflexively look away. Our blinders keep us from disquieting truths. Well, here we are, and without a doubt, 2020 is proving to be a year when our often hidden and unpleasant history is smacking us square in the faces, presenting us with new opportunities to learn. Maybe? Monuments to racist figures in town squares across the the country have stood quietly for decades, but they're not being attacked and pulled down by angry mobs in the streets. As part of this tide, Princeton University removed the name of perhaps its most famous alum and school president, Woodrow Wilson, from what was the Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. This wave is certainly a sign of many people seeing ugliness in our history for the first time, but does, quote, the impulse to cleanse, destroy, and remove smack of a Maoist spirit of fanaticism end of quote, a wave that swept across China in the so-called Cultural Revolution of 1967, as our guest worries. There's a brand new term, cancel culture. Perhaps you've heard it. What does it mean? What is the danger at looking at the history of long ago through values of the 21st century? With us today is Rick Shankman, a New York Times bestselling author of seven books and an elected fellow of the Society of American Historians. His latest book is Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. He founded George Washington University's History News Network. You can follow him on Twitter at Rick Shankman. What caught my attention for this show was his intriguing and thought-provoking article on History News Network titled, We're all historians now. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Rick. As someone who may be obsessed with learning more and more history as I age, should I be pleased or worried or both? Well, I think the fact that the United States is now finally having a conversation about these unpleasant subjects from the past is all to the good. Um, As you indicated in your introduction, though, there is a a worry that uh, we're going overboard. And usually social movements have a fringe that does go overboard. And uh, we're seeing that. And unfortunately, the way the media works, um, the fringe tend to uh, get a an, uh, misleading and disproportionate amount of coverage. Yes. When, in fact, very few people, for instance, uh, want to uh, uh, knock George Washington off his pedestal. But... Um, You've got uh, guys like Tucker Carlson on Fox who were screaming and going on and on and on about 
uh, people who supposedly want to knock George Washington off his pedestal. And the conversation kind of gets kidnapped by the extremists of both the right and the left. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, that is. Well, as I've heard it said for many years, and I believe it to be true, politics is theater. It's got to be dramatic. That's what the media picks up on is the dramatic. Otherwise, they don't bother with it. The title of your article, We're All Historians Now, that's kind of a sly reference to something Benjamin Franklin said at the time of our War of Independence. Please explain. Well, it's one of my favorite quotations from history. Uh, At the time of the Revolution, um, everybody had to all of a sudden start uh, thinking about politics, which most people um, really hadn't given much thought to. But the revolution forced people to start thinking about politics. And then as the more democratic spirit of the revolution became self-evident, Franklin had this epiphany, which is we're all politicians now in a democracy. And of course, they resisted the whole idea of having a mass democracy that didn't come about for another generation. But the idea that uh, we should uh, govern ourselves uh, that mm-hmm. was very much a, uh, a principle by which the founding fathers uh, uh, lived. And if you're going to have self-government, then that means very simply that we all have to be politicians because we're all going to be caught in the act uh, constantly of negotiating with ourselves and with others about the terms by which we want to uh distribute power in the society and that's what politicians do and certainly we have so many people it's so much easier not to pay attention to politics and even easier than that not to pay attention to history i mean myths are just so soothing and simple you don't have to do any thinking about it uh, yeah but, hey, can i can yeah. i pause you right there because sure. i'll tell you you know for years i've been reading political scientists who've said that most americans find politics um Uh, upsetting. And so because it's upsetting, uh, because so many bad things are happening that they disagree with, that they turn away from it. And I understood this on an abstract level, but I never felt it emotionally until Donald Trump became president. And now I feel it myself. Every day I'm compelled when I wake up to uh, grab my, my iPhone and start rummaging through Twitter to see what the headlines are, what are people talking about, But at the same time, uh, I've never had such an unpleasant reaction to politics, not even when Nixon was around or we had the Vietnam War. No, we're in a whole nother. uh, It's not even on another planet. We're in another universe now. And it's very, very unpleasant. So I finally understand when the political scientists were saying most people didn't want to deal with politics because it's unpleasant. It's like, oh, this is what they're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I I mean, we all know so many people who are, you know, holed up in their houses and they watch the news all the time. And it's incredibly depressing. I mean, on a psychological basis, there's a huge amount of depression. And a lot of it has to do with what is in fact happening on the news. (sighs) Yeah, you know, and that's just reality, unfortunately. Now we've had forty. Exactly. We've had forty-five presidents so far. I sure hope we get a number forty-six. Huh. Certainly, not all of them have been terrific. As one who's endlessly fascinated with the massive insanity of the industrialized slaughter known as the First World War, of course, Woodrow Wilson appears as an at best 
controversial figure. Uh, Growing up, we had been led to believe that he was one of the good ones, a progressive principal Democrat. But in his letter of explanation to the uh, Board of Trustees uh, of Princeton University in removing his name, Christopher Eisgruber wrote, many of the virtues that distinguish Princeton, including its research excellence and uh, preceptorial system, were in significant part the result of Wilson's leadership. He went on to the American presidency and received a Nobel Prize. Wilson's racism was significant and consequential even by the standards of his own time. He goes on to say, Wilson's segregationist policy make him an especially inappropriate namesake for a public policy school. Now, in your essay, you write, I have no problem with Princeton scrubbing his name off their international institute. Why is that? Give us some reasons why it was the right thing to do to scrub off this uh, famous president from the uh, uh, school in uh, Princeton. Well, I think the primary reason I gave, and I stand by it, is that the students at the school don't seem to want his name attached to their degrees anymore. This is uh, because um, history has changed our outlook on Wilson. As you rightly remember, uh, when we were children, I'm 65 years old, so I go back a long time now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We were brought up, if you were brought up in a liberal family, to believe that Woodrow Wilson uh, was a a wonderful progressive force. Yep. And if you read biographies of Wilson, as I did uh, growing up and in college and afterwards, uh, no one ever talked about uh, the segregation record or legacy of Woodrow Wilson. They didn't talk about how he was the president who segregated the Washington, uh, D.C. bureaucracy, the federal uh, government before Wilson wasn't segregated. Right. Blacks worked right alongside whites. But then he came along and he segregated. And this was uh, in part because he was uh uh, half Southern and yes. half Northern, and the the uh, Southern part, the Bullock part of his family, uh, uh, seemed to have uh, uh, left a strong impression on him. And also was due to just the times. This was really the worst period in race relations in American history since the Civil War. This is a what's called the nadir of race relations. This is when black people were being lynched at the rate of um, one a day. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to imagine. Well, all that wasn't uh, included in the biographies. They just skipped over this part. Yeah. And then in the 1960s, our consciousness gets raised and uh, we start realizing, at least for white people, start realizing that uh, black people... Uh, have not had it so good. And we started, historians started, a lot of different we's here, Mm. historians began um, combing back through American history to see what new understanding we could have of our history based on these new insights that we were gaining into ourselves. And one of the things that happened was we had a reckoning with Woodrow Wilson and what his legacy was. We still love the fact that he instituted the eight hour day, gave us the Federal Reserve and uh, was a uh, luminary of the progressive movement. But we now had to confront the stark fact that he was a 
uh, a racist, oh, yeah. an out-and-out out racist, no hemming or hawing about it. He was just a racist. And um, what that means for our history. And hopefully what it should mean is that it makes us more sophisticated about the past. Uh, there's a tendency uh -huh. to take a moral approach to history, and I think that's gravely in error. Oh, interesting. Well, we'll have to talk about that more as we go along. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks. We're talking with uh, historian Rick Shankman about uh, we're all historians now. And, of course, uh, the more I've read about Wilson with regard to uh, uh, World War One, the Great War, uh, he, he pontificated about uh, uh, self-determination, but that only applied to the winners in that war. And the crackdown on dissenters and immigrants was really ugly, like really bad. So it's important to know who the heck he was. He wasn't this shining, wonderful, progressive. Everybody is complex. You know, we all do good things and not such good things. Well, here we are in 2020, one heck of a year. The killing of George Floyd has had a remarkable effect of pervasive and systemic racism. A few questions relative to that new wide awareness. Statues to military and political leaders of the Confederacy. Now, Winston Churchill expressed great admiration for General Robert E. Lee, whose statue has been pulled down. He said, Lee was the noblest American who had ever lived and one of the greatest commanders known to the annals of war. So that's his perspective. Lee's memory still weighs dear in the hearts of many Southerners where schools and businesses used to close on his birthday. Amid great controversy and public demand, many of his statues, of course, have been removed. Is it right to apply today's cultural and ethical standards to the memory and place in history of General Robert E. Lee? What do you think? There's a historian uh, who spent his lifetime um, writing biographies of Lee and George Washington. And he did these multi-volume uh, biographies. Uh, his name was Freeman. And um, if you read them, you gain, you get the impression that he holds Lee and Washington in the same, at the same level. They're both uh, gods of American politics. Mm -hmm. And you, you sit back and you wonder, how is that possible? How could you compare George Washington, who founded the country, and Robert E. Lee, who betrayed it? who led an army against it. And he did it, uh, while he may not have personally been in favor of right. uh, the slave society, he was doing it to save a slave society. That was the whole raison d'etre for the birth of the Confederacy. So we're left with this conundrum of how can we square uh, these, um, these conclusions of our ancestors, that Robert E. Lee was a great American and a great hero. And I think what that speaks to is just our making a, an assessment on Lee that's based on his generalship and his personal qualities, his interactions with people, with white people, and the way that he conducted himself with white people. And in that regard, he was quite an admirable figure. But the only problem, of course, is that it's not just white people that he interacted with. Mm -hmm. There are also black people that he was interacting with. 
And black people, he was making decisions about whose lives he was helping ruin through those decisions. So hopefully today, looking back, when we're not so caught up in the melodrama of the immediate moment, we can take a longer perspective and understand, okay, he's a complicated figure and he could be several things simultaneously Mm -hmm. as we all can be. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, just to circle back to uh, the theme I was talking about a little while ago about um, taking a moral view of history It's extremely dissatisfying, I think, to look back at history and do a moral accounting. These people are the good people. These people are the bad people. And the problem with that is that human beings basically behave according to the situation in which they find themselves. So Robert E. Lee was in favor of uh, slavery, or at least willing to defend slavery, because he came from the slave South. If he'd been born in uh, Quaker, Pennsylvania, or in uh, Rhode Island, in Providence, Rhode Island, or uh, up in your neck of the woods, he would not have been uh, in favor of slavery and would have taken a different attitude. So it was his situation that led him to make the decisions that he made. Now, there's one problem with the morally neutral approach to the history, um, to to history uh, that I'm taking. And that is that if you take that attitude that you should resist making moral judgments, which are very easy for us to make from our perspective and do this accounting, it doesn't it doesn't cost us a dime. It doesn't uh, make our hair turn gray or lose sleep at night. It's it's really easy. But the problem in uh, taking what I've been recommending a morally neutral approach to the past is that what then do you do about the Holocaust and World War II? If you do not take a moral approach to the Holocaust and World War II, you're missing the history. You're missing it. So we have to take an extremely complicated view of the past. It has to be both moral and neutral, and that is quite a task. And that's why uh, historians uh, take years to write their history books, because it's not easy to go through this. It's not like writing a children's history book. Uh, It's complicated. Boy, it is complicated. And uh, yeah, I can see your point. I mean, there's a problem with just being completely situational. You know, as as you say, you have. I mean, there's got to be some sense of of morality here. I mean, I believe yes. Lee came from Virginia. Virginia was, you know, the the, the states were powerful then. They many people saw the states as as uh, uh, preemptive over a central federal government. So that was what he came from. And uh, but then here we are. And what do we honor? You know, what what do we want to preserve as as history i mean and memory you know as you say memory is not history uh you had a a really good quote about that i'm trying to find it now but that uh history is more complex it's more important and it challenging as it is we need to deal with it and it's in this year 2020 history is 
slapping us right in the face, and so we're all historians. Now, people who oppose back to the statues, the removal of the statues, have derided the movement as a, quote, cancel culture. I had never heard that term before. What do they mean, and what are your thoughts on what they mean by cancel culture? Well, cancel culture is a term invented by the right wing to disparage what the left is doing as they uh, take a look at society and try to call people out for obnoxious or notorious views. So um, uh, if you call out a, uh, uh, a neo-Nazi for their uh, outrageous uh, uh, white supremacist views, um, you basically are saying this person uh, holds views that are so outside the mainstream that we should cancel them. And mm. um, as far as the left is concerned, there's nothing wrong with that. The right wing looks at this and they say, oh, uh, cancel culture. You're going to now selectively decide who is uh, an right. American and who isn't an American. Right. And the irony is that it was always the right that was doing, employing this approach to our politics uh, and not the left. It was the left that traditionally was saying, let's, uh, um, uh, to quote Mao, uh, mm. let all the flowers bloom, right? So that was the traditional attitude of the left. But uh, it was the right that was saying, if you're not a good American, uh, we either want to lock you up or shut you up or deport you. We don't really want to have you um, uh, uh -huh. debating us, and we don't want to engage with you. So the original cancel culture was was actually orchestrated by the right. Uh. But when the left started taking this approach, uh, then uh, the right immediately saw an opening and said, aha, cancel culture. It sounds horrible. Uh, what are you afraid of, you liberals? Why don't you want to... Uh, talk to these people. Why do you want to limit our free speech rights? Oh. And on it goes. Oh, my, yes. They, they're so good at, at uh, saying, you know, accusing the other side of precisely what they're doing. I believe that was part of the uh, Nazi way of doing things as well. Uh, now, I've long opposed erasure of history and replacing it with myth. For example, our determined refusal to learn the obvious lessons from our war in Vietnam that, Rick, you and I went through uh, has led directly to wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and people have lost lives and limbs because we don't want to learn that history. The myth of returning soldiers being spit upon, which may or may not even have happened, seems to have guided our foreign policy in the last few decades, that myth rather than the actual history. Though, of course, I agree that the racist leaders shouldn't be honored, is concern about political correctness in danger of going too far? Well, uh, there's always a danger in all these movements of going too far. And uh, my husband and I sit at home, we watch TV, and we always pretend there's like a, a YouTube camera uh, on us as we're <laughs> reacting to the news and we're talking. Oh uh, quite often, at least once or twice a night, we'll say, turn off the camera as we're about to say something that's very un-PC. 
And that's because I think that PC culture has gone too far, but um, that's okay. So we can debate uh, uh, different ways in which it's gone too far. Um, I do think that the general idea that there are some uh, views that are too noxious uh-huh. uh, for public debate uh, is generally, that's, a, that's generally a, a good impulse. But again, the conservatives uh, uh, revolted against that and uh, found an opening because the liberals can go too far with it. Uh, so when uh, somebody, uh, well, let's just take the, the Tucker Carlson program from last week on Fox where he was uh, 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 going up against uh, a United States senator and, he, and he's asking um her about um tammy duckworth uh, or, i believe yeah exactly it was a uh, cnn interview in which i think she was asked about uh what does she think about george washington statues being toppled and rather than immediately saying uh the thing the prudent thing which should have been uh no i don't want to topple any george washington statues she said i think we ought to be having a national conversation about this Well, so she's being a good liberal is trying to say, you know, we can talk about anything. Uh, And I understand the impulse. But as a politician, that was the wrong thing to say. Somebody else said that was uh, an extreme case of political malpractice. And um, and it is uh, political malpractice. You know, so this is where I want to basically say we ought to. Try to be politically correct uh, in the sense that, you know, I don't think we ought to have neo-Nazis as uh, part of the national conversation. I think a lot of what Donald Trump has done to the country is broaden the uh, terms of the debate in very unfortunate ways. So he has given license to white supremacists to uh, feel like um, they, too, are a legitimate force in our society and they can go out and parade that they believe in uh, white power and mm-hmm. white nationalism, and that's okay. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, in that sense, I'm, I'm for politi- being politically correct. Yeah. No, you guys, I want you to shut up and go away. We don't want to hear from you because the more we talk about it, the more people will start thinking, hmm, that guy's got something to say. That's kind of interesting. Oh, and then if you try to shut him up, oh, you're stopping free freedom of speech and it just drags the whole conversation of the country in a very unfortunate direction so that instead of us talking about the actual problems that we have a pandemic a great depression a president who is basically a mad king who's lost his mind yes um instead of talking about those subjects which are very real and palpable we wind up talking about political correctness, which is just uh, a culture war argument yes. used to divide us and uh, really doesn't help us address the real problems that we're facing. And it's just about being, you know, sensitive, caring about other people, about their good, you know. And I, I wonder sometimes, I mean, I've read a fair amount of history. I've got a lot more to read. I've admired William Jennings Bryan as a progressive populist. He ran for president a number of times. Yeah, but helping the little guy against the power of the rich and powerful. But he was also a racist by today's standards. I, I think back then 
there wasn't even the word racist. I believe uh, pretty much everybody, all white people, were what we would consider racist at the time. As you write, times change and so do our moral outlooks. Can I still, I mean, I suppose I admire William Jennings Bryan for some things, but not for others. I don't know if there's any uh, statues to him. I don't think there are. Now, there must be, there's got to be a statue somewhere of William <laughs> Jennings Bryan. I can't remember seeing one, but somebody <laughs> somewhere has got to have done a statue of him. You know, he was actually a very popular figure in American history right yes. up until the Scopes Monkey Trial. Yes. And then he testified there. Uh, in Tennessee in the 1920s, 1925, if I remember right. Uh -huh. And um, he sided with the fundamentalists um, right. against science, and that destroyed his reputation. Before that, liberals were happy to celebrate William Jennings Bryan. Uh, they overlooked his, uh, his yeah. racism. They overlooked his uh, uh, religious fundamentalism, and they just thought, you know, he was a paragon of progressivism. Well, it turned out, that he really uh, had a more complicated yeah. uh, history. Again, as you were saying, as do we all. Absolutely, as we're, do we all. We're all. I mean, let's 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 have an uncomfortable conversation. Let's let's make the uh, audience a little uncomfortable here. Okay. So, if you want to be uh, judging the past and saying there's good guys and bad guys, what about ourselves? Okay. So, ten years ago, gay marriage was regarded by an overwhelming majority of the country as something uh, to be deplorable. Yeah. They would have uh, favored a constitutional amendment saying that <sighs> one man right. and one woman constitutes a marriage and that's it. Right. Two men can't get married. Right. Okay, so we've had a sea change in the last decade, literally in the last decade. Yeah. It's that We've been married four different times in four different places just to prove that we could get married. Yeah. Well, um, Suppose I had given a speech or somebody had given a speech 10 years ago deploring uh, gay marriage. Well, now from our perspective, it's like, God, what's wrong with you? You're really primitive. There's something wrong with you. And yet that's in our own time period. Yes. It's not very long ago. It's 10 years ago. So you have to understand that um, our mores change and our moral outlook changes and as it does um we adopt different points of view on political questions and that's okay that's okay so we're complicated i'd hate to think that you know a hundred years from now when the planet is six degrees or <laughs> whatever three degrees or four degrees warmer than it is now and life as we know it today is impossible right. because you've got to run air conditioning uh, 365 days a year because you can't go outside without uh, practically melting. And the attitude that those people are going to have to us, uh, uh -huh. they could certainly take a really sharp, harsh, moral view of, 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 of us today. Of us today and the decisions we're making today, right? Well, like we know, we're just like the guys uh, in the on the eve of the Civil War. We know what's right and wrong here. We know that we have a planet that is burning up, yeah. and if we don't take uh, major action now in the next 10, 20, 30 years, we're dooming the planet to be a hotter planet that's unfavorable to human beings, to Homo sapiens, and we're not 
taking the action that we ought to. That's so right. There... How, is that, how is that any different from what the founding fathers faced when half the country was slave and half the country was free? And they said, well, slavery is a necessary evil and we're just going to have to hold our noses and we're going to just create a country despite it. And we're going to overlook it. We're going to say that question is going to have to be resolved at some point, but not now because we've got more important things going on. So isn't it the same thing? Isn't it the same thing? Well, I, I wonder, and for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Live. Our guest is Rick Shankman, a historian. We're talking about we're all historians now. You know, you can look back at, you know, Germany in the 1930s. How did they not know? How did they let this happen? How did good people let this happen? That's it's an open question. It's an open question. And here today we have uh, that 16-year-old, maybe she's 17 by now, Greta Thunberg from Sweden. She is warning us exactly what you're talking about. But, you know, the sense of morals in, in history, you know, there's, there's, I hate to think morals are relative, but I, I guess sometimes they are. I, I don't know. And, you know, we, I wonder what the place of morals and morality is in history. Your thoughts on that, Rick? Well, it's, uh, I keep using this word complicated. Yeah. And uh, if history and anthropology teach us anything, it's that every culture uh, evolves a different standard of morality. Um, and That's a good point. Even that, even that society's uh, standard of morality changes over time. So it's not just that the Germans over in Europe have once set of morals and we Americans have right. another set of morals. No, we Americans, uh, as we were just talking about with gay marriage, um, we're changing our morals uh, constantly. Human beings, the, the only constant in history is change. And it's not just our technology that changes, but so do our morals. Now, the one thing that is constant uh, is human beings uh, looking out for one another. Mm, okay, so mm. that is a universal moral uh, uh, precept yeah. that no matter what society you live in, um, if you are uh, a bully, uh, that society uh, <laughs> has little use for you. Even though bullies often make it to the top rungs of society. Indeed, yes. Um, still, uh, I know of no society that celebrates bullies. So we have at least, yeah, there they, are some, they don't celebrate the idea of bullying. So there are certain moral precepts to which all human beings seem uh, to be attached. But as soon as you delve into the, uh, the concrete, um, it gets murky. Yes, indeed, it does. Uh, some opposed to removal of any statues. I mean, of course, you talk about bullies. Who would I think of? But the guy in the White House, and and he, you know, he opposes statue removal. He wants to still enable uh, Confederate flags and the naming of army bases after Confederate leaders. Uh, and and they ask he and his supporters ask loudly if we should tear down monuments to Jefferson and Washington, as they too in fact, owned humans. Where does the notion of purity come into this heated discussion? Do these, I mean, wh what about honor for these men? Well, it's interesting. Um, uh, honor is uh, 
the, was the moral code of uh, the South. Um, it's uh, uh, generally believed that the South uh, uh, was an honor culture. And so that means that uh, people uh, were constantly uh, uh, threatening each other uh, with uh, duels, mm. uh, challenging because they felt their honor had been challenged. So that's what an honor culture uh, often results yeah, in. A interesting. Lot, there's a lot of dueling and bloodshed because if what's your honor is on the line, well, you have to take the extreme measure of killing the other guy, right? Because it's your honor that's on the line. This is uh, cultures in the Middle East uh, are uh, many uh, of them true. are honor cultures, which is why uh, when uh, uh, a, a daughter gets pregnant out of wedlock, mm -hmm. uh, they think of um, uh, the daughter's got to get killed. Right. Uh, their her own family will say that because to, they have to uh, uh, come to the defense of the family honor. So uh, all of these are tricky tricky concepts and tricky questions. Um, Robert E. Lee was an honorable man mm -hmm. given the uh, context in which he was operating, even as, is, is, even as he was willing to tolerate one man holding another in slavery, which to our way of thinking is just crazy. It's right. immoral. Right. But he could, he could uh, convince it that he was a man of honor, given the cultural assumptions of the antebellum South. Interesting. Yeah, there is relativity there. Einstein was right. And the South lost the Civil War militarily. But abolitionist Wendell Phillips, after the war, noted, maybe the South would never again leave the Union or take up arms against it, but it would rule from within. I think they did. President Andrew Johnson did all he could to roll back Reconstruction and restore power to the white men of the Old South. Woodrow Wilson, again, was a man of the South who reintroduced segregation. Southern Democrats in the U.S. Senate blocked national health care in the late 1940s because it might mix the blood of whites and blacks. There have been many racists in Congress throughout our history. Uh, you write, we should also rename all those army bases named for Confederates. Trump's, Trump wants to keep the names. How is it that there are so many bases in the name of what we would today consider traitors? How did that happen? And what do we do about it? Yeah, well, um, the bases were named, basic, uh, almost all the bases were named for Confederates uh, around the time of World War I. So we had a very small standing army uh, on the eve of World War I. And then as soon as uh, uh, Wilson uh, convinced the Congress to declare war on uh, Germany, um, we had to immediately uh, ramp up and create all these bases all around the country. Well, they needed names. Ah. Well, a lot of the bases were a lot of the bases were in the south because uh, in the south you have good weather uh, year round, so that's where you're going to put your bases. Also, um, traditionally, uh, the south um, uh, uh, generated more uh, soldiers sure. for the army. Uh, because of that honor culture and uh, uh -huh. uh, rever reverence for military figures, 
Uh, so more the people in the army were going to be drawn from uh, the South. And so it made sense to uh, when the local officials were trying to come up with names, you're trying to inspire mm-hmm. the soldiers who you're recruiting and you're trying to encourage recruitment. Um, well, um, you're going to name them after local military heroes. And the Confederates were still local military heroes, mm-hmm. not nationally, but locally. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, there's a political angle, which is a lot of the, oh, yeah. uh, the, the, the way the Democratic Party was in charge of Congress at the time of yes. World War One, yes. and a lot of the uh, Democrats who were the heads of committees, like the um, military affairs committees in the House and the Senate, uh, they were uh, uh, dominated by Southerners. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because of seniority. Uh, we finally got rid of seniority in the 1970s as the uh, only criterion by which um, a member of Congress would rise up through the ranks until they became chairman. Uh, but back uh, uh, at the turn of the, uh, the last century. Uh, 20th century, yeah. um, seniority was still in play. And so you had a lot of Southerners uh, who were the heads of these uh, leading committees, and they had right. to approve the names of these uh, <laughs> the of these uh, forts. Yeah. And, and just just to finish the story, I mean, sure. uh, the Democratic Party uh, relied on its majority rested on uh, the base of uh, whites in the South oh, yeah. who identified as Democrats only because Lincoln had been a Republican and Lincoln had conquered the South. So for 100 years, nobody in the South wanted to identify as a Republican. So by default, these white politicians were Democrats, whether they were conservative, liberal, or whatever they were. Well, that seems to have changed with Lyndon Johnson in 1964 and 65, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, and then they all switched over and became Republicans. I've heard it said, and I believe this is true, not all Republicans today are racist, but all racists are Republican. Now, it's commonly understood that the pendulum of history swings back and forth, though it's never really swung left in my opinion. I don't see it. But your essay in uh, History News Network raises this concern about the exuberance of the current moment. You say, I think the impulse to cleanse, destroy, and remove smacks of a Maoist spirit of fanaticism. It's dangerous and has clearly gotten out of hand. Please take a few minutes and explain your concern here. Well, it's a little bit of what I was saying at the uh, outset, which is um, in any particular moment, a movement, uh, almost any movement, uh, will wind up having a fringe, and that fringe is uh. going to um, uh, take extreme views. And the more polarized the country has become, uh, the larger the fringe groups um, uh, have become, because both the left and the right are now dominating the conversation rather than the mushy middle uh, uh, through uh, through most of our history. Uh, the mushy middle has been where most Americans find themselves. And then you have uh, groups on the, the left and the far left and groups on the right and the far right. Uh, my apologies for the fire. I hope it's not your building. <laughs> no, it's not my building. We're not on fire here. So that's good. Um, the extremes um 
didn't have that great a role in the public conversation. But today, as a result of polarization, uh, they do. And that's really the problem. And the Maoist spirit that's behind the um, uh, impulse to take down all these uh, statues represents uh, the far left views of uh, we, we just can't tolerate um, these statues for one more minute. Hmm. Uh, even though we're a democratic society and uh, the way these statues should be coming down is by city councils, mm-hmm. uh, whoever's uh, got uh, responsibility uh, or control over those statues, um, they should be uh, having uh, holding a hearing. They should hear from the people and then the city councilmen or whoever should hold a vote and then the bureaucracy should go into action and city workers should go over to these statues and take them down, right? I mean, that's the premise. We don't believe in mobocracy. Right. And yet what we've been seeing is mobocracy at work here. These are mobs. These are literally mobs. Now, a part of me is kind of encouraged when I see uh, these horrible statues coming down. I'm thinking, yay, you know, and I want to cheer them on. But I don't want to cheer on the mobs. And as long as we have a democracy, which means um, the rule of law exists and it is possible for you to go out, convince other people um, to believe what you believe and then to elect leaders who reflect your views. As long as we have that process and it's functioning, then we should use that process and not take some extra legal um, and run around it and start deciding on our own, we're going to pull these statues down. Boy, I see that on the right and left. And certainly, you know, the impatience, it's got to be right now. And the mob looks like a lot of fun. You get some of these so-called Antifa people who, you know, I think they, they're more uh, interested in, you know, pretending they're Batman, you know, and just going out there in the streets and, and being a mob. It's, that's not what democracy in America is about. And we have to have, you know, a little bit of patience and persistence you know history rarely turns on a dime it takes effort persistence working together Uh, maybe we can learn that from history i would hope that we could and national identity has everywhere been contentious no matter where you say what i don't favor is taking a sledgehammer to the old narrative and demolishing it our people like every other people on earth need a story And you say a distinction needs to be made between history and memory. History is complicated. Memory is not history. It's simple. So what are we saying when we put up and preserve a statue? Who should the new statues be to? Well, the new statues should reflect uh, our values. And uh, since we've done, white people have done so many wrongs to black people, um, and there are very few statues of black people in the country. Uh, True. I, I, I see a great uh, adjustment of a wrong by replacing statues of white supremacists and white racists with statues of black people, uh, heroic black people. And we certainly have uh, uh, many black people sure. that we could... Uh, uh, make statues of. And so I'm cheered by that. 
but what we shouldn't do is just let the mob, you know, part of you, you hear some of the mobs, uh, the members of the mob invoking the Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party. Mm. And the problem with that analogy ah, is the Boston Tea Party was um, uh, it was an organized mob. It really wasn't a, a, a mob at all. It was so highly organized. But um, uh, it was because the people at the time did not have a democratic government. They did uh-huh. not have self-government. They did not have control over their politics. The king and parliament, thousands of miles away, controlled their destiny. So they, as a result, had no uh, choice but to take extra legal measures mm. to effect change in the society. Now, I'm all in favor of civil disobedience um, when there is a wrong that is so palpable uh, right. that you feel morally driven to disobey the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have a, a moral obligation to obey a bad law. Um, but uh, you then have to be willing to accept the consequences. You can't go running away. You have to be willing, like Martin Luther King Jr., to be locked up in jail and go through the process and uh, that's going to actually gain you the respect of more people in the society and probably lead to faster change than just taking the law into your own hands and um, uh, doing yeah. as, as these mobs are doing now. It is uh, exciting, scary, uh, an interesting time. I, I wonder... Well, I, I meant one dimension. I was in doing the research for this. I, two articles appeared in one newspaper in the same day. The two headlines were "Teachers Work to Broaden History Lessons" and "Changes in the Works for Site Honoring Hannah Dustin, Woman Known for Killing Native Americans." That's the same day. As you say, we're all historians now. Much as we'd like to avoid the hard demands history puts on us, we can't sidestep the task. End of quote. And as you say, historians have been talking about this since the tumultuous and, I would dare say, optimistic 60s. You find this bracing. What do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, my husband, uh, uh, his his eyebrows went up when he read the final line. He said, bracing. Oh, bracing. It's uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of an old word. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting word, isn't it? Uh, But I do find it encouraging. Uh, you know, bracing may be a, a little bit pedantic, uh, but uh, I do find it encouraging that we're having this conversation now. I mean, yeah. Bill Clinton in the 1990s, if you remember back then, uh, wanted to have a conversation on race, and he hired John Hope Franklin, who's a great black historian, uh, to lead the conversation. And it just went nowhere because mm. uh, Americans were just not uh-huh. in the mood at that moment. There was nothing palpable about the moment. Uh, uh, where we were going to talk about race relations. Uh, we needed to see that video of George yes. Floyd yes. Uh, having the life sucked out of him uh, to kind of stimulate this national conversation. So uh, really, I find it encouraging that we're now finally talking about these things. The stories have been talking about them for well, since the 1960s, mm-hmm. when our consciousness was raised, yes. and now the whole country 
is uh, talking about it. And that's why we're all historians now. We're all having to think like historians. And I do, I do want to uh, emphasize uh, that what you were talking uh, about a moment ago, which is um, we do need a national narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, every people has to believe in themselves. And so I don't want to throw the old national narrative completely in the in the hamper because what are we then left with? Then it's just a material culture. And, mm. uh, the only thing that unites us is that we're all consumers. Well, how drab and dreary is that? You know, you've got to have some story to tell your children about uh, who we are as a people. Uh, we're not we're not uh, united by our, our common ancestry because right. we're a country of immigrants. So what is it that unites us? Well, it ought to be uh, the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. That's what Lincoln argued for um, on the eve of the Civil War. That's what the Gettysburg Address is all about. Uh, that's what his inaugural address is, particularly the second inaugural address is about. Um, all men are created equal. So that's the ideal. And we have spent, they, the founding fathers planted that seed. And even they couldn't anticipate how that tree of liberty was going to grow. Yeah. They couldn't tell you what it was going to look like 150, 250 years later. But here we are. Uh, we now see what it's like. And... Um, I think that's a great story to tell. But it doesn't mean you have to celebrate the Confederates. It doesn't mean you have to leave Robert E. Lee on his uh, horse pedestal in um, Virginia. Uh, we can we can change our heroes and still adhere to the basic narrative of this is the story of America. It's the story of the unfolding of human freedom, even as we acknowledge that there have been more than just bumps in the road. Yep. There have been wholesale repeals of freedom. We went from yeah. the Civil War, slaves being freed, under Reconstruction, slaves being given power, former slaves being given political positions, being elected senators and governors in the South, to then the repeal of Reconstruction in the South, mm-hmm. where basically for 100 years, blacks were worse off yes. uh, than they were during Reconstruction, that brief 15-year oh, sure. period of the Civil War. So um, it's not this the unfolding of human freedom, uh, and you can see it in evidence every in every mm. generation. No, freedom can be lost, and we lost it for a long time for blacks in this country. But... Um, the meaning of America, if it means anything, has got to be about freedom and how we interpret and reinterpret freedom every generation. That's our responsibility. That's our story. And and the definition of freedom. Some people, the Trump people and others, feel like freedom is freedom of uh, uh, businesses to make as much money as they want without any regulations. And I think that's really what they believe freedom is. But I think, you know, with... with Everybody, everybody witnessing the murder of George Floyd, there's suddenly a new and real air of, of possibilities. And I wonder how important, just on leave on this last note, how important is an understanding of history to keeping democracy alive uh, and to uh, the American story? And, you know, we got to learn from it. We have to learn. And as I think you 
talk, mentioned how, you know, we have to look at what is America? What, you know, the Declaration of Independence, what, what is our national identity? So how important is an understanding of history beyond myth to keeping our democracy alive? Well, I think it's vital. Um, if, if the only thing that unites us is uh, the fact that we're all consumers, uh, yeah. this republic will die. So we've got to we've got to revere um, uh, the study of history, and any particular narrative is going to be massaged because every generation right. uh, has the right and gets the opportunity to reinterpret the past according to their own their own light. So after the civil rights movement of the 1950s, historians realized we need to reinterpret American history because we've not been paying any attention to black people. How is that possible? We didn't pay any attention to black people. So now they, they rewrote all the history books. And that's part of what Donald Trump's upset about because when he was a boy in elementary school in his military school in upstate New York, um, he learned a certain a set of facts and to his way of thinking, that's history. And he's he's shocked and appalled by what they're teaching uh, now. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of conservatives are shocked and appalled by what's being taught to kids now in school. And, you know, they just have to get over it. Um, history <laughs> is not written in stone. It's going to be reinterpreted every generation in light of new experiences. So that's where we are. Well, very, very interesting. Thank you for this conversation. If people are interested in reading your other works and following you, anything on the Internet thingy that you can point them to or books? Sure. Well, they can just go to rickshankman.com or look up uh, stoneagebrain.com, the website for my last book, and that's an easy one to remember. Uh, No spelling problems. Stoneagebrain.com. You'll get it. Thank you so much. And let's uh, move on with history. Thank you so much, Rick Shankman. Thank you, Bert. I appreciate it. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white. The bright blessed day, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow. So pretty in the sky Are also on the faces Of people going by I see friends shaking hands Saying how do you do They're really saying I love you I hear babies cry I watch them What a wonderful world. 
I think to myself. 